Scripture this morning is from Genesis 19, starting in verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up to Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters. For he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and he will lie with him, and we will lie with him, that they may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lie down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lie down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all glory and all honor. We are grateful for your goodness and grace so abundant in our lives. Lord, I'm especially thankful for for this church. You have blessed us in so many ways, we can't even begin to number them. I pray for each person that you have added to this family. You know every need. You know what we've experienced, and you know what is to come. Lord, may your merciful hands guide us, provide for us, empower us, make us radiant with your glory for all to see, not for us, but for you. Make us bold as we move through life to proclaim your good news. We pray that we might be effective as harvesters for your kingdom. Add to our number, not for our own comfort or for our own pride, but for your glory. And that we might see your gospel advance mightily in our community and throughout our world. Lord, today we pray especially for Luke and Jackie and their children. We pray that you might give them fertile minds and steadfast endurance as they study language. As they prepare themselves, Lord, for deployment, 
We pray that you give them opportunities where they are to build relationships with numbers of people, that you will help them to be able to serve and strengthen the church where they live. We pray for your spirit to be poured out upon their city and their country. We pray that you'll bless their children as they continue to adjust or to life in a new place, a new country, a new culture, and a new language. We're grateful for how you're already answering this prayer, and we pray that you will continue to guard them, Lord, from the enemy, and that you will enrich their relationships with one another and, Lord, with you. We pray for our brother Yuri today as he ministers in Ukraine. Lord, guard his health and strengthen him. Protect his life as he serves you in a war-torn land. I pray that you will bless and encourage his family. Fill them with peace. Give them joy while he is away. Lord, bring an end to this horrible conflict. We pray that you might do it in a way that exalts you and makes all men proclaim your glory. Lord, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, we pray that our hearts may hear you speak. We pray that your spirit will give us ears, uh, ears to hear, eyes to see, that we might understand your truth. Prepare us to obey you and to honor you. Draw us to your table of remembrance today that we might indeed exalt you, that our hearts might be renewed and refreshed and grateful for all that you have done for us. We offer this prayer today in the name of Jesus, our Savior, your Son. Amen. Well, last week we covered uh, pretty much the first 22 verses of this chapter. And we learned that the great outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah was confirmed by God. In other words, He proved that the allegations toward this city, this area, were true. We also found that the righteous would be delivered. The righteous would be delivered according to God's promise out of the coming judgment. We learned that Lot was declared righteous by God's word. And we learned that he struggled with dangerous affections for the world. He did not run from Sodom when he heard the indictment against them. And the promise of coming judgment, he didn't flee. In fact, he lingered and had to be extracted. It is important to realize, I think, that homosexuality is a prominent theme running through this chapter, and it's a go-to place for many. But I think that it's also important for us to understand that that's not the only sin that these people were guilty of. It's easy for Christians to target and rail against the low-hanging fruit here. And it's helpful for us to think carefully about these matters. I believe three things in a way of preparing ourselves to think about this chapter carefully should be at the forefront of our minds. First of all, we should be concerned that homosexual advocates 
in our culture today or at any time, believe it is a good and worthy cause for celebration. That's just a reality. And this becomes a significant barrier to the advancement of the gospel. Such people close their eyes, turn a deaf ear, a hard heart toward the gospel. Secondly, we should be concerned that homosexual advocates, as well as the church, tend to think about this sin as being unforgivable. And again, this can create a major barrier to receiving the gospel and also proclaiming the gospel. I remind you that God is all-powerful and can transform anyone in any circumstance. He created everything. He certainly can renew and restore anything and everything. And then thirdly, we should be concerned about how our own hearts react to God's truth. Our own brokenness, our sin leads us often to ignore God's word, to edit God's word or revise it, and to excuse our own sin. These three things should be kind of the foundation as we go into a passage like Genesis 19. We should keep everything in a proper balance, I think. Now, Genesis 19, verses 23 through 38, portray two horrific pictures. And unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to get to both of them today. But we're certainly going to spend some time with them. The second shows uh, sin's stubborn persistence and its hold on humanity. And I think we'll get to that next week as we look at verses 30 through 38. The first reveals God's holy wrath concerning a wicked city and people. Now, not only do we need deliverance from the penalty of sin, we're going to learn here that we need deliverance from the power of sin in our lives each and every day. So let's begin looking at these verses this morning, beginning with verse 23 and through um, about verse 29. I think we'll cover uh, with um, some effectiveness this morning. And the thing I want you to see in this first section is it's focused upon God's judgment. It's important for us to understand that God's judgment always comes with a perfect tension of grace. There is a perfect tension of grace between God's judgment and his mercy. And we see that displayed here in this text. The day, this day, began just like any other day. The sun came up in the morning, it rose over the land, everything looked just like it had looked the day before. The contrast must not be lost on us between what we see here and what we saw in the city of Sodom. Lot enters Zor in the the miraculous light of a new day. It's bright, it's optimistic, it's hopeful, it has safety and security as its promise. While in Sodom, the men were groping in blindness and perversity, their wickedness trapping them, and they were facing nothing short of God's wrath and judgment. Heavenly fire and destruction are imminent for them. God has said as much. They have no hope, only the wrath of God to come. Now, I'm struck by the collision 
here of destinies between these two peoples. Yet the narrative almost understates it. Notice what it says. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. One sentence is filled with optimism and hope. One sentence, the next sentence, is filled with tragic, devastating, breathtaking judgment. It's quite, quite vivid and disturbing. What we understand here in this passage, first of all, is that God's judgment is always right. God's judgment is always right. We talked this morning in our uh, discipleship class uh, asking the question, is God right? Is God right to do the things he does? Well, he's always right in what he does. God is incapable of making mistakes. He knows all things. He has a perfect plan. He is sovereign over all things. We talked last week about the wickedness that characterized these cities. They were overrun with perversity, immorality, depravity. They lived for carnal pleasure. Carnal pleasure. Jude 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Not only were they sinners, but they pursued it actively. We might even say with aggression. We saw that played out last week as they surrounded the house where Lot and his guests were dwelling. These cities embraced sexual immorality. But there was more going on here. There's also social immorality working its way through this city. It's not as obvious to us because we get lost in this one stereotypical issue. Remember how Abraham's hospitality was portrayed in chapter 18? Very warm, eager, servant, humble, embracing the guests that came to his tent. And then we saw it again with Lot, a little different. Lot was a little bit more tense because of the surroundings and because of the character of the city in which he lived. But he still displayed hospitality, welcoming his guests in and taking care of their needs and providing food and rest for them. This was the custom of the day. This was expected. This was not something that was overboard. This was the minimum. And yet we see none of that in Sodom. In fact, they weren't looking to give or to serve in any way. They were looking to take. They demonstrated the complete lack of customary hospitality. Ezekiel gives us a little more clarification on this matter. Ezekiel 16, 49 says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters, the other cities around the area, had pride. They had excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. So we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, we typically think about one dimension, don't we? We think about the sexual immorality that was on display there, that was a part of who they were. We think about the egregious affront there at Lot's house, but there was much more going on. They were a prosperous people. And yet, 
They were greedy. They were stingy. They failed to help the poor and needy. They were so consumed with self-pleasuring that they had no time for anyone else, no interest in helping anyone else. They were oblivious to the needs around them. They were oblivious to the gospel of God. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, come on, pastor. You think someone preached the gospel there? We don't really think Lot was doing much preaching Yes, I think they knew the gospel. I think they'd heard the gospel. Look with me back in Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. You remember this, right? Lot had been taken hostage by these kings from the north. And Abraham went and rescued him. And not only him, but people from these cities around Sodom. Possessions. After his return, verse 17, after his return from the defeat of Kedolaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, Sodom, the king of Sodom, underline it, king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaven. That is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high and he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord and Uh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Abraham had opportunity to share the hope that was within him with the king of Sodom, with the people of Sodom. They were not without excuse They heard the truth, but their hearts were hard. God's judgment is always right. But God's judgment is also imminent. If you give notice at work this week that you're going to leave for another job, you might work another two weeks or you might work a month, but you pinpoint a time in the future and you say, uh, our relationship is coming to an end. I'm going to move in a different direction, but there is a finish line. There is a point in time that you direct attention to. But if there were black clouds rolling in today, you've seen them. They come in when the humidity rises and they're just all puffed up and just ready to team over with a downpour. And we know that the downpour is imminent. It could happen at any moment. God has given us notice. Judgment is a certainty. Judgment is real. Disobey me, judgment's certain. This entire fallen creation, humanity, is on notice that the judgment of God is coming. And it is imminent. God doesn't owe us, nor should we expect to see any sign, any directive that says this is when it's going to happen. He says it's coming imminently. It can happen at any time. God has always delivered his judgment according to his own timetable. Leviticus 10, verses 1 and 2. Listen. 
Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. In other words, they violated the way that God wanted to be worshipped when he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. No announcement. God had already said, this is the way I want things done. If you don't do this, there will be consequences. And upon their disobedience, God brought judgment. Numbers 11, 1, the people of Israel complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. When the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. No announcement, no timetable. He'd already put them on notice. If you disobey me, if you don't trust me, you don't worship me in spirit and in truth, judgment will be the consequences. Ecclesiastes 9, verses 11 and 12, again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. Judgment God's judgment is eminent. We see all around us, we see a world, we see humanity created by God for his own glory, for his own exaltation, for his own purposes, thumbing their nose at him, living life any way they choose, doing things not only without regard for obedience to God, but in complete opposition to God, in defiance of God. And he has said, I will not allow this to go on forever. I will bring judgment. The judgment is imminent. And our continued conduct every day, our behavior of defiance toward God is a warning that it's coming. It's an assurance that God's judgment is coming and it could happen at any moment. But I want you to see also that God's judgment is also unparalleled. It's quite common for people to speak about natural disasters as being judgment. I've heard, I've heard famous preachers say that, that when a catastrophe, a natural catastrophe falls upon a people to say that this is the judgment of God, I could not be in more disagreement First of all, the natural disaster is what it is. It's according to this fallen, unnatural world. So there are things that are results of our own sin that we brought upon us. And so disasters occur. Weather patterns collide and terrible things can happen. But when judgment occurs, there's little confusion about it. When we look at the scripture, we see examples of the judgment of God. When the flood came, it was the judgment of God. And make no mistake about it, it couldn't be, it couldn't be blamed on a, on a random chance storm, right? It couldn't be blamed on weather patterns or a natural disaster. It was the very judgment of God. And when God brings judgment to bear upon Sodom and Gomorrah, 
There's no, there's no, there's no arbitrariness about this. It is an active move by God to bring discipline. It's from the Lord, he says. It's heavenly fire. It's divine judgment. Now, many scholars think that it's probably just a combination of earthquakes and storms and things like that. But the Lord rained sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, the text says. It's not random. It's not coincidental. It's purposed is the judgment of God against sin. He uses the word overthrow three times in this passage to overthrow what's in existence, what's occurring here, to turn it upside down, to change it completely. God is overturning this settlement of wicked people. I would remind you that Genesis chapter 13 said this place was well watered. When Lot first stood and looked and Abram said, choose which direction you want to go. He looked and he saw this valley and the scripture says that it was well watered and lush like God's garden, like the garden of Eden. The implication is that they harvested abundantly year after year after year. The produce came in. Lot coveted this area. The trade routes across this region brought masses of people across it. And with it came vast wealth, immense wealth for these people. They became lazy. And again, I refer you to Ezekiel 16. They became lazy and indolent and complacent. They became calloused and cold. We used a word this morning in the Bible's discipleship class they became entitled. They, they began to assume that it would always be this way. Just like they did in the day of Noah. They were giving in marriage and they were going on about the normal things of life. Jesus would say later, until the day that the floodwaters began to rise and to fall. There's some unavoidable parallels with our own culture. Nathan referenced this earlier. You know, the U.S. population shows significant gaps in income perception and reality. The way people think about, about uh, income or wealth and the way that it really is. You know, most people in our nation, it's really a sad thing. As I began to read and study some about this, that we prosper so much in this nation and yet we have a... Um, a an understanding or an expectation as if we're poor. <laughs> we think that we need to have more. Ask people where they see themselves financially and most of them underrate it. They underrate where they stand financially. Ask them how they view income around the world and they usually over-exaggerate. Just human nature, I guess, fallen nature. For instance, let me say this, if, if an American living in this country earned $60,000 a year, $60,000 a year, you would be in the top 1% of earners in the whole world. Puts a different perspective on it, doesn't it? Especially where we live here in this area. Recent years, 
those at the bottom are actually declining in earnings. So the very bottom of the economic scale in the United States are actually declining in the amount of money that they garner each year. And we could spend many hours discussing this topic, but the point is that we are very wealthy people by economic standards worldwide. Per member giving in Protestant churches, per member giving, let me say it again, per member giving in Protestant churches is below the Depression era percentage. The Depression era percentage of giving in, among members in Protestant churches was about 3%. It's something less than that now, 2.5 or 6. Stunning, isn't it? The conclusion is that as prosperity increases, generosity decreases. We find more uses for the money. We are entitled to those things. Sodom's problem was not just sexual perversion. They had a heart problem. They had a selfish problem. They were living for themselves and for their own pleasures. And Ezekiel 16 says that God saw it and said, I'll remove them. He doesn't just say, I saw their sexual immorality and I'll remove them. He said, I saw the way they lived, the hardness of their heart. And their lack of compassion, their lack of generosity. I saw everything. I looked into their heart. And I said, I'll remove them. I'll remove them. I want you to know also that God's judgment is inescapable. God's God's judgment is inescapable. Something very interesting occurs here. The angels remove Lot, his wife and daughters from Sodom. They tell him, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. Now, how would you respond to that message? A couple of divine visitors show up at your house tonight, and they share with you that God's getting ready to bring judgment. He's bringing judgment. The eminent judgment is here. They say, you need to get out of this place. You need to get out of America Judgment's coming. Flee for your life lest you be swept up. I mean, that's plain language, isn't it? About a pretty serious subject. To live, you must escape. To live, you must escape. Don't even look back. (laughs) Why? Will we be blinded by the sulfur and the fire that's coming down? Oh, this is about much more than that. This is about the heart. It's about the soul. It's about trust and obedience. Taking God at his word, believing God. Do you trust that his judgment is coming? Do you trust that his judgment is just, that it's right? Do you believe it is faithful and good? Or do you believe it's unfair? Do you believe it's unwarranted? Do you believe it's rash? That there's a better way. Do you have a thing for this fallen world and its wicked ways? Do you have affections for the pleasures, the trappings? This was a test of trust, obedience, faith. And Lot's wife failed the test. 
She was out of Sodom. The implications here are that they were nearing Zor, that they were getting ready to enter Zor. She was almost at the promised land. Almost safe, almost home. And she couldn't stand it any longer. She turned and took one more look. But it was a long, hungry look. Because you see, her heart was still in Sodom. Her heart and soul was still in Sodom. She was probably a native of Sodom. She probably grew up there. And her heart was still there. It wasn't where God dwells, but it was where all those good times dwelled. It was where all of her possessions dwelled. It's where all of her friends dwelled. It was all the things that made up life in Sodom. That's what drew her affections. Even though it was depraved, even though God had condemned it, even though she and her family were the only God-fearing people there, she missed it. She mourned it. She was heartbroken for it. And she reaped God's perfect justice. She became a pillar of salt. You see, her unbelieving, dead heart that had been hidden from Lot and others suddenly manifested itself. Her deadness overcame who she was. She's spiritually dead condition is now manifested outwardly. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 9 through 13 says, The Lord's not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. The judgment of the flood, the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, these are road signs. They're road signs for us. God has placed them here carefully in order to warn us, to warn us that this is real. This is not a fantasy. This is not, this is not a myth. He's not mocked by human sin and rebellion. He reminds us that we should not mistake his mercy for indifference. His holiness demands that he judge sin. Humankind has only two ways to face God's judgment. We can stand there on our own like Lot's wife. We can face it alone or like the people of Sodom. In our own strength, with our own record on display and think that Because God is God, because he's a loving God, he won't judge me. And that'll be a terrible, terrible mistake. God's righteous character demands that sin be judged. You can either face that judgment yourself, or you can have an advocate. 
Jesus came to be that advocate. Jesus came to stand in our place. To take the wrath of God to himself. To exhaust it. To drink it down to every last drop. That those who put their trust in him. Who believe his gospel. Can be set free from their sin. And be invited in to the home that God has prepared for them for all of eternity. God's judgment is real. But God's judgment is always in tension to his grace. In this passage, we see that Abraham, the last time we saw him, he was interceding for Sodom. He was pleading for Sodom. God, if there's only 50 there, would you judge the city? If there's only 40 or 20 or 10? And God said, no, I, I won't sweep the righteous away with the guilty. Abraham came out of his tent and walked to where he could see in the valley. And he saw, he saw the judgment of God. But we know that Lot and his family were spared. Extracted from this judgment. They escaped it. God remembered Abraham, it says. He remembered his pleadings. He remembered his promise to Abraham. And I would submit to you, he always and forever remembers his promise to Abraham. And if you're in Christ Jesus, you are that promise. And his promise stands today. Judgment is coming. It's imminent. It's inescapable. It's real. And it's right. But for those who put their hope in Christ... Christ has paid. He has, he has suffered your judgment to set you free from it. If you will but put your faith and trust in him. We come to the Lord's table today to remember Christ's saving work. As we look at these elements, we remember his body suffering in our place. We remember his blood shed, embracing death for us. His atoning work, perfectly satisfying God's justice. If you're a true follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ, and if you have believed his gospel and trusted his finished work as your hope, if you're a church member here at MCC or a church of like faith and practice, we invite you, if you're in good standing at that church, this church, to join us this morning as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And remember, remember His remembering us. If you're not a true follower, you're not in right relationship with Christ, or you're not in right relationship with his brothers and, your brothers and sisters in Christ, I pray that you would put these matters straight before God, before taking the supper. It's a dangerous thing to flaunt God's righteousness. After I pray, we're going to sing together. And as we sing, we invite you to come and pick up the elements and return to your seat. And after everyone has served themselves, we'll partake of these elements together. As Pastor Nathan will come and lead us in the taking of the supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We understand, Lord, that your judgment is right. You are a holy God. We're so grateful, Lord, knowing that we cannot possibly stand in righteousness before you because we're sinners. But in Christ, 
Lord, our sins have been forgiven. As we come to your table this morning, we pray that, Lord, our hearts, our minds would be drawn to remember and reflect upon the great price that you paid, Lord, to give us this incredible gift. We pray that, Lord, you would drive it deep within our hearts, our souls, and that we would live differently because of our relationship with you. I pray for that one that's in our midst this morning that does not know you, that the truths of your claims might become clear and convicting and powerful in their heart and life this morning, that you would draw them to yourself, that they might turn from sin and self and put their trust in you and you alone. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.